this morning we can open our Bibles up to the book of Revelation, and we're going to start in chapter 3. Finally gotten through chapter 2, I know what you're thinking, on to chapter 3. And I just want to say, if you were offended last week at the message, I'm glad that you came back, because we're offending a whole other crowd today. Uh, We are equal opportunity offenders, so don't worry. And actually, if you haven't been offended yet, just wait. Once we get through all seven letters, we are sure to offend everyone equally. So don't worry there. And here's the deal. If Thyatira and the letter to Thyatira is representative of the Roman Catholic Church, it's very, very difficult to escape the letter to Sardis referring to the Reformation Church. Okay, so we saw some good things said about Thyatira. Jesus had some commendations to extend to them. But I want you to take note that to Sardis and the church therein, Jesus has nothing good to say. It is only condemnation and exhortation. There is no commendation to this church. The Reformation that we'll speak of was a reaction to the ongoing pagan influence in the Roman Catholic Church. And this included keeping the holy text, the Bible, away from the common people. They kept it shrouded in mystery, which was a big thing in pagan practices, this mystery. But these Reformation groups sought to bring the church back to the scripture and the scripture back to the church. And that was one of the driving forces of the Reformation. And this started off as something precious in the sight of the Lord. This Reformation bringing the text back to the church. But today, as we'll see, it's morphed into something common. What was once precious has turned into something common. And many of the so called Reformed churches of today seem no better than the Catholic Church that they split off from. Now, we know that there's no commendation given to this church, but there's a buildup of imperatives in the first half of this letter that are all part of Jesus's prescription for this church, or a treatment plan, if you will. This is how he's going to shock them back to life, because he says that they are dead. We see that he exhorts them to be watchful, strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. Verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Therefore, remember how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before 
his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have this letter to the pastor of the church in Sardis, and no doubt also addressed to that local congregation in Sardis, to us as believers today, and to our churches today. We have four levels of application for this letter. Now, verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. Now, at the time this was written, there was approximately 60 to 100,000 people living in this city of Sardis. The Pactolus River ran straight through the city, and there was a large deposit of gold that was found in that river. The Greek and Roman legend attributed this gold to the actions of a king, Midas. And that probably rings a bell and brings to mind wealth. Midas was a king of Phrygia who was known for his foolishness and greed. And this was a historical character, but the Greeks and Romans made a legend out of him to explain the gold in this river. The legend says that this king Midas found Salinas, the satyr companion of Dionysus, who is the god of wine, found this satyr wandering about. He took him in and showed hospitality to him. And because of his kind treatment of Salinas, Dionysus granted King Midas with one wish. Midas chose to have everything that he touched turned to gold. He soon realized the error of his ways when he almost starved to death because his food and his water turned into gold. You can't eat gold. It's only precious to a point. But Dionysus granted him release from his foolish wish by having him bathe in this pactless river. And this is how those ancients explained the presence of gold in the river. Um, it actually, you know, flowed downhill from Mount Tumulus. I'm not sure how you say it, but there's a mountain that feeds the river. Obviously, the gold washed down from there. But regardless of how it got there, um, this electrum, which technically is what it is, electrum, it's a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver. That electrum provided a great source of wealth for the city and for the kings who ruled. This city of Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire. Um, And it came under control of several different empires during its heyday. But um, probably the most famous was Cressus. This Seleucid king, Cressus, who reigned from 560 BC to 546 BC um, was one of the wealthiest in the region, and no doubt because of these deposits of gold. But there was a problem with this electrum. Electrum varied in composition, so its value wasn't solidified. Okay, You could have more gold in one piece of electrum than in another, thus the value would be you know, kind of variable. So under Cressus, though, his metallurgist figured out how to separate the gold and the silver in this electrum. 
And what that did was it created a standard. So they were actually able to mint gold coins, the first in history, that had a definite value. And same with the silver coins. So this prospered trade. You can imagine having a currency that everyone knew was worth the same amount, what it would do to the economy. So that's pretty cool. It allowed them to make the first coins that had a consistent value. And during the same time as Cressus ruled in Sardis, the Persian Empire was thriving under King Cyrus. And we know that King Cyrus had one of the largest armies of his day, uh, actually the largest. Cressus consulted the Delphic Oracle. This is you know, an occult oracle concerning whether he should go to war with King Cyrus and the Persians. The oracle returned the answer, if you attack the Persians, you will destroy a great empire. So Crescent thinks, all right, hey, that's pretty good. Let's get the guys ready. We'll go down there and attack Cyrus. So he decides to do just that. Well, the oracle didn't specify which empire he would destroy by attacking the Persians. Turned out not to be the Persian Empire, but his own empire that he destroyed. Now, he was defeated by Cyrus in battle, and he retreated back to this city of Sardis. It was a bit of a fortress, actually. And he holed his army up in the city. The city of Sardis was on top of what was about a thousand-foot cliff. It was well-protected from three sides by this sheer drop. And on the other side, it was actually approachable. But all you had to do to defend the city was really station your men on one side of it. And you felt fairly comfortable with the rest because nobody can climb up that. Wrong. After a 14-day siege of the city of Sardis, Cyrus offered a reward to anyone who could figure out a way to scale these apparently unscalable cliffs. So he puts out this reward. One of Cyrus's guards who was watching the city saw someone drop a helmet over the wall and tumble down the cliff. That night, the same guard saw someone coming down to retrieve the helmet. He watched closely and figured out that there was a path up to a secret door in the side of the wall. So he took a mental note. He said, all right, that's my key. So Cyrus led a party of soldiers up to that door. They took the city, and nobody had even known that it happened. They took the city by night. Nobody knew what was happening. Again, in 218 B.C., Antiochus the Great, who was also a Seleucid king, captured Sardis from the Persians. So he took back for the Seleucid Empire what Cyrus had taken from them. And this victory was similar to Cyrus's in that the soldiers of Antiochus the Great were able to sneak into the citadel, this time by climbing up one side of the cliff. And in both cases, the city was taken quietly in the night. 
So there developed a saying that Sardis was the city taken like a thief in the night. And this fits perfectly with the message that Christ delivers to this church. The warning here is about apathy. Are we awake? Or have we become complacent and comfortable? The city of Sardis was taken when they were comfortable in their lofty fortress. And this is the question we must ask ourselves. Are we getting comfortable and complacent when we should be guarding our fortress? The Sardis-era church system has let their guard down. Now I want to turn your attention to the precious stone called a sardius in Scripture. And we find this name specifically in both the Old and the New Testaments. The sardius stone It's first mentioned in Exodus 28 as being in the breastplate of the high priest. It's also referenced by name in Ezekiel as being a precious stone. And I'll note these other references in Revelation, because we'll be there soon. Revelation 4.2, and the last in Revelation 21.20, when it's talking about the New Jerusalem. The problem is that the labels... For these semi-precious stones, in both Hebrew and in Greek, are inconsistent. The Sardius stone specifically was probably regarded as very precious back in antiquity, but has become something more and more common throughout history and up to our modern day. It's thought to have been red, and Sardis actually means red one the name of the city that we're looking at. It was probably red, but not much is known about this stone other than that. You can read ad nauseum about the supposed identity of the Sardius stone, and you won't come to a conclusive position. And this seems frustrating to us, but it's actually very enlightening. What was the condemnation of Christ to this church. That you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You see, the fact that this stone has a name, but no significance, is exactly what this letter is all about. This church system has a name that it's regarded as alive, but it's dead. Its significance has been lost, at least in the eyes of Christ. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If you will remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, John references the seven spirits who are before his throne, speaking of the Holy Spirit. The reference is the same here. It's to the Holy Spirit, the one who has the seven spirits of God. And this church is in dire need of the Holy Spirit. That's what they need. He has what they need. If we look back to the apostolic church, we can see very clearly the Holy Spirit working in every move that they made and everything that they did. The apostolic church was dependent on the work of the Spirit 
He led their efforts in teaching, expanding, evangelizing, everything. And the church has lost that dependence on the Spirit. And Christ would have us return to that dependence. And the seven stars. We know from chapter 1 that these seven stars are the seven angels or pastors of these churches. And in Revelation 1.16, John described Jesus as having in his right hand seven stars. Same seven stars. He holds the church leaders in his hand. So not only do we need the Holy Spirit to function as a healthy church body, but we need Christ too. We need the Holy Spirit, we need Christ to function as a healthy body. Remember that Christ is the head of the church, and no healthy body is without a head. We need the head for the rest of the body to function. Christ says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, this is a scathing condemnation from Christ to the church of Sardis. This is not a good thing. He says, I know your works, which he says in each of the other letters as well. And many times it is used as a commendation. It's a good thing. Here, it's not a good thing. And you'll come across commentators that disagree with me. Some view this as still a commendation. I do not, and this is why. Jesus says in the very next verse, I have not found your works perfect before God. This kind of seals the deal for me. I don't think that Jesus would congratulate them for their works and then in the next breath condemn them for their works. I think that this is all condemnation here. Verse 2, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. So verse 2 jumps straight into this treatment plan. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. This is Christ's treatment plan for the church. Be watchful. That is in the present active form of the verb. It means be becoming watchful. Evidently, they weren't watchful. He says, start getting that way and continue to be that way. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. And this is an imperative. All of these are things that you must do. This is not a list of suggestions to this church. This is a list of imperatives. You must strengthen those things that remain, that are ready to die. Now, this is good. This is good because they're not dead yet. The church, he says, you're dead. But there are things which remain. There are good things that are still just below the surface that need to be pulled back out. I think I kind of imagine Jesus over this church with the AED. He's getting the pads ready for the shock. And he's giving them this plan, 
but it's things that they must do to get them to snap out of whatever kind of coma they're in and become effective once again. Their pulse is slowing. And if you will consider your own walk with Christ with me, I bet every one of us can think of something in our walk with Christ that's beginning to die off. We all come to Christ and we are gung-ho for him. And we can't get enough of the Bible. We can't get enough fellowship with other believers. But at some point, those things start to wane. And they start dying off, fizzling out. Are you consistently in God's word? Well, I, I read my Bible a couple times a week. You know, I do my best. Read it every day. Strengthen that which remains. Are you consistently in prayer? Well, you know, I pray sometimes when things get tough, but I could do better. Pray continually. Strengthen that which remains. Do you go to church to get that good Christian fellowship? All of y'all are here this morning. That's awesome. Well, I used to go more consistently, but lately I've only been able to make it once, maybe twice a month. Make it a point to get here and get good fellowship with other believers. And that's the whole point of our Thursday night deal too. You come Thursday night and it's in a smaller setting. I'm not the one talking, thank goodness. And you get to visit with each other. You get that fellowship. Strengthen those things which remain. Don't let them die out. Don't give up on them. Give them that shock and yank them back to life. Now, this is something that takes some doing. This is not a passive thing. We must and get them back in the fight. That word strengthen literally means to establish or to steadfastly set. Christ is calling this church and us this morning to reestablish what we once had. For I have not found your works perfect before God. And this word perfect also means complete. Their works have not been brought into a state of completeness in the sight of God. There are things lacking. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Received and heard refers to that deposit of the gospel message that was made in each one of their hearts. Remember how you've received and heard. Do you remember how you heard and received the gospel? Do you remember what it felt like? Didn't you just soak in every word in the scripture? You just bathed in it. Did you understand everything about soteriology? How you were saved? The ins and the outs of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration, the new birth? Did you understand all that? Of course not. You know, I still don't understand it. Not completely anyways. But we come as a child with childlike faith. In Mark 10, 15, Jesus says that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. How does your child 
or did your child receive the care and provision you extended to them? How did they receive it? They didn't say, Mom, I wish you would just let me pitch in a little bit for my room, pay you rent every month. You know, I'm just so grateful for you and dad keeping the house cool during the summer, warm during the winter. I just want to pitch in. And there's so many times that I remember you've changed my poopy diapers. And there's so many times that I've kept you awake at night. And I just want to repay that in some small way. You know, they don't understand how you've done it. They don't understand your mortgage, that you have to pay rent to keep your house. They don't understand the principal and the interest, and they don't care. They're just enjoying the provision that you've made for them. Isn't that right? They're just there. Like, they're enjoying you being with them. They enjoy, no doubt, the warm house. Are we coming to Christ in the same way? Are we just enjoying the way that he's made for us? That's how we came to him, in a childlike manner. They just know that they're being cared for and that they're hungry again and they want another bottle. Are we hungry again? Do we know where to go to be fed? Go back to the scripture. When we came to Christ, we certainly didn't know much, but we recognize that he made a way and he's received us and we received him with open hearts. Remember how you received and heard. Hold fast. Jesus is telling them to hold fast to that gospel that they've already received. There's nothing new that needs to be added, nothing that needs to be taken away. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That comes from 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel of Christ contains a power to transform lives like nothing else in the universe. It is so unique in that sense. And it's so simple that a child can understand it and can come to God with a broken heart and say, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I've messed up. A child can understand the gospel, but it also has perplexed theologians for centuries. And we can dig into this gospel. And the further down we go, the further we realize that we can go. It is so shallow and so deep all at the same time. The gospel of Christ, and that is the gospel of grace, is so, so very powerful. But what happens when the gospel of Christ becomes polluted, either by the insertion of something outside the gospel that's being brought in and put beside Jesus, 
or the elimination of an essential part of the gospel, what happens? Well, simply, it becomes another gospel. You cannot add to the gospel of grace. You cannot take away from it, or you fundamentally change its structure. It's like a molecule. Some molecules only differ in one bond or in the orientation, like a mirror image. If you flip that molecule, it becomes something totally different altogether that interacts with other things in a totally different way. The gospel of Christ is not something to be polluted or changed. And at the beginning of his epistle, Jude wrote, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith. The faith with that definite article is referring to the gospel. And that's what he's talking about here. Jude wrote about this along with many other writers. And now Jesus is telling the church at Sardis to hold fast to the gospel and the childlike way that you've received the gospel. Hold fast. There are certain hills that we can justify defending to the death. And there are other hills that we cannot justify defending to the death. For example, and just because we're in Revelation and we'll be talking about this, I have my own convictions about when the rapture will take place. And if you haven't picked up on that already, you probably will before we wrap up Revelation. And maybe you share those views with me and maybe you don't. But we would do well not to let that difference of opinion, if there is one, get in the way of our fellowship. We're both blood-bought. You know, we believe the same gospel. Whether you think the rapture comes before or after the tribulation, you know, it doesn't affect the fact that we're brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. So there are certain things that we should not be defending uh, vehemently, but there are times to defend what you believe, those core central issues. And heresy falls into two basic categories. The first, a false concept of the personal deity of Christ. And two, the mixing of works with faith. And I would posit that whatever heresy you uh, can point at, it will fall under one of those two categories. You mess with Jesus or you mix works with faith. And both of these pervert the gospel that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, unfortunately, we are seeing a departure from the gospel of Christ in denominational churches today. And there are certain great truths that we're seeing being lost. They're fading away into obscurity. And I've got some listed out for you with references. The first is justification by faith alone. We have to be careful not to mix a faith-based salvation with a works-based salvation, because what happens? 
It changes the structure of it altogether. It becomes a completely different gospel. Another great truth, the gospel of grace. Goes along kind of with the last one, but the very next verse in Jude, that is Jude 4, says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the precious grace of God has been turned into what is termed cheap grace. And that is used as a license to sin. Jude says, don't let the grace of our God turn into a license to sin. And this is a problem for many reasons. And in part, because the grace of God is not cheap. The grace of God is afforded to us because of the blood of his son. That's the only way that we could be extended that grace. See, God is loving, but he's also just. He is a just God, and our sin deserves punishment in the form of death. Who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The inerrant word of God. This is another foundation that we stand on. And it's becoming harder and harder to find teachers who actually believe that the word of God is inerrant. As sad as that is. Soft hermeneutical traditions lead to all sorts of problems. You know, hermeneutics is the way that we interpret the Bible. And when we're soft with our hermeneutics, we can tend to lean towards an allegorizing approach where we take something that the text says very plainly and turn it into something that it just doesn't even talk about. We can have that tendency, but if we're more strict, then we more strictly adhere to specifically what the text says. You see, the Bible doesn't contain the word of God. It is the word of God itself. The depravity of man. This is something else that we've seen uh, being lost. This is why Jesus had to die for us, because we are inherently sinful. If there was any way we could be enough in and of ourselves, Jesus would not have needed to suffer and die on our behalf. One of the greatest lies of our generation is that we should look within ourselves for enlightenment. This is a bunch of baloney. Do not let that lie get into your mind. There is nothing inside us but darkness. The light comes from without ourselves. It comes from the Lord. In scripture, we never see a heart that is repaired. Only one that is replaced. That's because we are dead in our trespasses, and must become a new creation in Christ. The redemption by his blood. It's becoming increasingly uncommon to find churches that are willing to talk about the blood of Christ. 
whether because it's seen as too gory, too graphic, you know, people will shy away from talking about the blood. But the blood of Christ is the most precious thing in the universe. And I will stand behind that. How can we not talk about it? Let's look at these two verses that I've provided for you. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then I've got a longer passage in Hebrews, but we will focus on verse 20, saying... This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the blood of Christ, there is no remission of our sins. The blood is so, so precious. We've seen a denial of the millennial reign of Christ. This is one big reason that a lot of churches avoid studying Revelation and denominational churches because they deny the millennial reign. The denial of the millennial reign started back with Origen, who was a church father. He kind of took the more allegorizing approach Um, He was the first, quote-unquote, amillennialist. He sought to teach that the millennial reign was happening right now and that Christ reigned in our hearts, but he will not come physically. This is false. That was picked up by Augustine, who did a lot of good things, but he also perpetuated this lie. And in Augustine's time, the church and the state had merged. Now, if you're the state, if you're the government, the millennial reign doesn't sound too great, does it? I mean, honestly, Christ comes back to crush the governments of the world and set up his own government. That's not something you want to be teaching your citizens. So the state church tended to go towards amillennialism instead of what we believe as a literal millennial reign. And that notion has seeped into the denominational churches. And that's where that idea came from. But ironically, the vast majority of the text that we have dealing with the millennial reign is not found in Revelation. It's found elsewhere in the scripture. And there's buckets and buckets of textual evidence for a physical reigning of Christ on the earth. In fact, when they pray the Lord's Prayer, they say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they don't even know what they're praying. That is speaking of the millennium. You see, God made an unconditional covenant with David that his descendant would be given an eternal kingdom. This is the Davidic covenant that was given in 2 Samuel 7. Then 
the angel Gabriel confirmed that covenant to Mary when he said, he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's found in Luke 1. So the denial of this millennial reign is actually calling God a liar. Because God has promised first to David, and throughout history, he's re-upped this covenant. It's an unconditional covenant, by the way. There's no condition that needs to be met for God to meet his condition. It's unconditional. God promised to David, re-upped it to Mary, that someone in David's line, we know that to be Jesus, would inherit an eternal kingdom. The denial of that is calling God a liar. We also see the denial of Israel's prophetic destiny. And this usually comes in the form of what is called replacement theology. And this is the idea that the church has replaced Israel as God's people. Now, this is a false idea, and demonstrably so. Uh, It basically says that God is done working with Israel, which is simply false. You know, it was easier to believe before 1948 when Israel was reconstituted as a nation. You know, before that, it was easier to get on this bandwagon because, hey, Israel is not even a country right now. Israel was scattered. The people were scattered all over the Middle East, and there was no nation of Israel. But in 1948, the nation of Israel reconstituted. I will point out also that that has never happened to any other nation in history. That is a unique event that happened to God's people. The church will not replace Israel We see the absence of biblical devotional life. There has been a waning of actual Bible study and devotion. And you look at even local churches, and you'll see this happening. The reformers died, in many cases, because of their deep conviction to get the scripture back in the hands of the common people. That was a very precious thing. And now we've replaced Bible studies with book clubs. You know, let's all read a book, come together, talk about it. And the Bible studies are beginning to fizzle out. Seems that Christians think that they can glean enough of God's word from reading other books. But I just encourage us to return to the source. You know, You've got the primary sources and the secondary sources. Primary sources are always regarded as having higher value. Let's return to the source. We've seen a de-emphasis of the gospel of Christ. And we've talked about this in a different form, but basically works are getting inserted and the blood is being taken away. We've seen also ordination of homosexuals. Now, you look at the, the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 
I would argue that anyone living in open sexual sin or any other kind of sin is disqualified from being a leader in the church. And it doesn't have to just be homosexuality. If you're uh, having physical relations outside of wedlock in any way, you should not be leading the church. It's as simple as that. But these great truths of the Reformation, something that men have died for, are being lost. They're fading into tradition, obscurity, you know, the old-timey stuff. When Jesus says, strengthen the things which remain. No, you're barely hanging on to these things. Just strengthen them. And the list could go on. Christ is looking for something from us, and we've been found lacking. Our works are incomplete in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Jesus says that if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know which hour I come upon you. A thief is an unwelcomed guest. Nobody that I'm aware of invites a thief into their house. They try to keep him out, keep him away, keep him from coming in. Christ says, if you will not watch, if you do not start becoming watchful, I will come upon you as a thief. That is unexpectedly at a time that you do not see coming. I don't regard Christ as a thief because I'm watching because I'm eagerly awaiting his return. If you don't know Christ, you won't be a happy camper when he comes back. That's just the fact of it. You're either with him or you're against him. And if you don't know him, he will be an unwelcomed guest to you. He will come upon you as a thief. But we have this hope. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So just the phrasing of the beginning of verse four is a scathing indictment in itself. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Even in your church, there's a few that are saved. You know, and I get that kind of tone from the text. Uh, But really, this should be encouraging to us. He's talking about the remnant of true and faithful believers in Sardis. And I would say that that also applies to this Sardis-era church, this church system that the Reformation has brought about, your denominational churches. Whatever system it is, he has reserved those 
who remain faithful to him. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now, I'm looking forward to this because there won't be any hip or cool outfits. We'll all be dressed in white. And if that doesn't excite you, I think that you don't know what it really means. See, white, just like the white wedding dresses that some of us wear, uh, it signifies purity. We are pure in heaven. How? By the blood of Christ. We are all wearing white. We are all purified by the same blood. You know, that excites me. And I don't have to worry about looking spiffy all the time because we'll all look the same. It's going to be a party. But if you find yourself enamored with fine clothes, you should get ready because you will look like everyone else up there. You're going to have to let go of that. Now, the blood of Christ has made pure these overcomers. And it's only by that blood that we can wear white. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the blood of the lamb. That's Revelation twelve eleven. Verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, there used to be a register in ancient cities that contained the names of the citizens. But when someone died, they would remove the names of those deceased from their register. So those who have a name that they live and are dead, Sardis, are blotted out of God's role of heavenly citizens. Did you catch that? Those who have a name that they live but are actually dead are blotted out of God's role of heavenly citizens. He's talking to this church in Sardis that he calls dead. But he says, those who hold fast will not be blotted out. They live forever. They will not die with the rest of them. Those who overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony remain in the register as heavenly citizens. They remain alive forevermore. And it seems that everyone with a physical existence is written into the book of life when they come into the world. But those who fail to accept or just outright reject the way that Christ has made for their salvation have their names blotted out of this book of life when they die. And at that point, there is not another opportunity to accept him. The name has already been blotted out. And we will encounter this book of life several more times in the book of Revelation. So I'm not going to dwell on it now. But some more references for you for this book of life in Revelation include chapter 13, verse 8. 17.8, 20.12, 20.15, 21.27, and then back in the Old Testament, 
Exodus 32, 32, Psalm 69, 28, and Daniel 12, 1. Jesus says, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So not only is your name written in the book and will remain, but Jesus himself will confess your name to the father. That means he's taking ownership of you. This one's mine. He's been blood-bought. He's paid for. He's good to go. Do not count his sins, his debt against him, because I've already taken care of it. It's already been taken care of and forgotten as far as I'm concerned. And this word confess is not just to reluctantly claim you as someone that just, you know, barely skated in there. But this word confess is an open and joyful acknowledgement that you're his. That one's mine. I've paid for him. He's good to go. Verse six, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And ear actually means a heart with the right attitude. He who has a heart with the right attitude, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all we need, a heart with the right attitude. And the Spirit will teach us things from these letters. May we not become complacent and comfortable like this church in Sardis had become. There were historians that tell us that in the market at Sardis, after they had been conquered those two times, same way, people would bustle about and talk about their glory days. They would talk about how great the city was, how it was impregnable. No one can conquer the city. They would dwell on their past success and their past name, their past reputation, May we not dwell on past reputation. How dangerous that is. They would dwell on their past glory and they felt secure in their lofty city. Far above that river valley, the Pactolus flowing down kind of acted as a little moat around the, the cliff as well. They felt comfortable and they were taken twice in the night. Nobody knew it had happened. Just like that. May we be becoming watchful. Christ is coming. And I think that we can all agree on. And that is the blessed hope that we place our faith in. We know that Christ is coming back for us. What we see around us here is not the best there is. And thank goodness. If we are in Christ, this is the worst there is. It only gets better from here. And we desperately look forward to the return of our Savior. You've probably heard the saying that necessity is the mother of invention. You see, when someone is uncomfortable because they lack something, they're pressed onward to satisfy that need, no matter what it is. There's a constant moving forward when we're uncomfortable. 
There's progress. And that's what we need. We need a little bit of uncomfortability to make progress that push us closer to Christ, to push us back into the word. None of us in here, myself included, knows everything that we need to know about the Bible. We should constantly be diligent to study. Be watchful. Strengthen that which remains. Remember how you received him. Hold fast to that and repent of any complacency that has crept in in your walk. Has something that was once precious become common? Let's all think on that this week. Something we need to have on our minds. Has something that was once precious become common to us? Let it not be so. Let's close in a word of prayer.